Oh, no, we're good. Well, this morning, uh, I want to do something a little different. Uh, Bruce first asked if I could cover him this Sunday, and then the next two Sundays, um, thought a lot about what to do. You know, uh, usually when somebody asks me to come in, they give me a Sunday, and then see ya. Uh, well, un- I put a lot of thought into it, and I thought, you know, unless Bruce is going to take a vacation for the next two years, uh, it really wouldn't be advantageous to uh, to do something real, uh, real to start something and then finish covering it over the next 10 years, one Sunday a year. So uh, what I thought about for uh, this next three weeks is I, I wanted to sort of direct our attention to Biblical principles that we should be cultivating in our life. Uh, and so I've chosen three for the next three weeks uh, to take a look at. And if today doesn't work, then we'll just scrap it and do something different the next two weeks. But uh, I I think it'll be good. I think it'll be edifying. Uh, and uh, I, I do want to say that what we're going to talk about today and the next two weeks uh, is not an exhaustive list of things that we need to be doing. There are more principles, biblical principles, that we should be developing and cultivating in our life. Okay? And so I, I, I wanted to be uh, out front with that because we're not necessarily going to be taking a passage of Scripture and walking through it verse by verse, which I know is not something we're allowed to do here. But Bruce isn't here to arrest me, so uh, I... I think we'll be good. Uh, So this morning, specifically what I want to take a look at is uh, cultivating a disciplined use of our speech. uh, Cultivating a disciplined use of our speech. Uh, This is a biblical principle that spans generations. We we have multiple generations in the room, and so I... You know, like try and find one that that sort of covers all bases because a disciplined use of our tongue really doesn't a struggle with cult, cultivating that discipline really doesn't go away the older we get. You know, it it's a unfortunately is a reality that we're still sinners, and one of the easiest ways for us to sin is with the way that we use our speech. Now, when I say our speech, another uh, term for our speech is our tongue. We uh, oftentimes will, in referring to different languages, talk about them speaking in a different dialect or a different tongue. Uh, And that's because this physical part of our body is so synonymous with our forms of communication that it is sort of taken on that meaning. It is one of the most important parts of our body, our ability to communicate with one another. You know, uh, we are the only created being with the ability to communicate like we can with each other. You know, animals can make noises to one another and they understand those noises to mean certain instinctual things. But we have an ability that far out, out paces that. You know, the the Lord created us in his image, and so we have his ability to communicate. Communicating and communication 
goes far beyond, though, the mere transfer of basic information. Because our speech communicates who we are. Okay? One uh, biblical author noting that the tongue is you. It is the tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the real person. And not just that. Misuse of the tongue is the easiest way to sin. You know, there, there are different kinds of sins that you know, we won't really be able to commit because we won't have the opportunity. I, I, I won't be able to, for example, commit humanitarian violations in a third world nation as a dictator because I'm not going to be given that opportunity. Okay. But we all have a tongue and we all have a way of misusing it. Deceit, flattery, cursings, perversities, boasting, complaining, sensual speech are available to every person at every time. One commentator noting, no wonder God put the tongue behind a cage of teeth. It was the boastfulness of Belshazzar and his praise of foreign gods that led to the fall of the Babylonian Empire. It was the bold words of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg that saw the rise of the Protestant Reformation. Nations have risen and fallen based on the use of our tongue. To the half-brother of Jesus, James, the tongue was very important. It is mentioned in every chapter of his little epistle. He uses it as one of his true tests of, of true genuine faith. James fills his epistle with different uh, tests that we can run in our life to see if our faith is genuine. And he begins in the first chapter with the test of perseverance. Moves on to the test of blame and temptation. The response of the word, chapter 2, we see the test of impartiality and righteous works. By the time we get to chapter 3 of his epistle, we see James tackling the idea of our speech and our tongue. It is so important that we examine what it is that we say, because as noted earlier, the tongue is who we are. It is the litmus test that proves where our heart lies. This principle is on display in Matthew chapter 15, and Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile a man. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, and slanders. Jesus spells out explicitly to his disciples that it is not what they put into their body that defiles them. It is their heart that is the source of all defilement. James in his epistle says, if you want to know if you are a true believer, look at what it is that you say. Because a heart that is brought under submission of Jesus Christ will produce speech that is repentant. And an unrepentant heart will produce evil, wicked speech. We're going to be looking at cultivating that discipline of our tongue. And we're going to look at primarily James's epistle here. But as I stated, we're not going line by line. Okay, so we can make our way to James chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 3. And so just to give us the immediate context, James begins chapter 3 by addressing those people 
that would consider themselves or, or desire to be teachers. And he says, don't necessarily uh, throw yourself in that boat. Uh, pump the brakes for a second because those of you who desire to be teachers will incur a stricter judgment. And that is because those people who teach, whose, whose primary uh, form of, of, of work, and uh, for example, in a, a, a pastorate, or, or even down to those who work in teaching the children in children's ministry, all valuable, important, none is higher than the other. I don't want to give that impression. But all of those people should take a second, take it because when they speak, and the more that they speak, the more they open themselves up to falling into the sin of misuse of their speech. However, there are biblical principles found here in James chapter 3 that apply beyond that. And so with, with that in mind, we see James chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. We're going to see the intrinsic power that the tongue has. James 3 verses 3 through 5, but if we put bits into the horse into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. James here in James chapter 3 uses two illustrations to demonstrate the immense power the tongue has to control. And he uses two illustrations. One is the bit and the horse, and the other is the rudder and the boat. So I want to take a minute and just uh, just talk through these, these different illustrations. If you can argue that there are a few animals that have, that have had such a powerful impact on our society as the horse. And we've used it in agricultural endeavors, in military endeavors. And it is, they're useful because they are able to move immense loads at high speeds with little effort. To see the immense impact horses have had on the history of humanity, we only need to look at the car. And they're measured in horsepower, right? And not squirrel power. And I, I even looked at like a manual from a foreign car. It's still horsepower. Yet, as exceptionally powerful as the horses are, they can be controlled by just a tiny piece of metal placed in their mouths. And when you compare a horse, the size of a horse to that of the size of a bit, there's a discrepancy there. I'm not sure how many bits it would take to equal one horse, but it would be a lot, I'm sure. One author put it, if you take 500 pounds, which is, as much, which is as much as a puffing Olympic heavyweight can hoist overhead and set it on the back of a horse, it will barely snort as it stands breathing easily under the burden. That same horse, unburdened, can sprint a quarter mile in 25 seconds. A horse is half a ton of raw power. Yet you place a bridle and a bit into its mouth and a hundred pound person who knows what they're doing, can make the animal dance. That's one of his illustrations. James also uses the illustration of the ship. Back in James's day, they didn't have large cruise liners that traversed the North Atlantic. But they had wooden boats, they had sails, 
They had rudders. And nothing, no, no ships the size of skyscrapers with massive multi-story engines. But even with our technology today, we still use rudder-type devices on our boats. Now, again, you look at the size of a rudder in comparison to a boat, and there's, a, again, a size discrepancy. Yet, it has a disproportionate impact on the use of the boat. You would think the largest implement would have the biggest impact, but it doesn't. James says, likewise, the tongue, being one of the smallest parts of our body, can control wherever it is that we go. One author stating, if a tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things would be cut down before they had a chance to live. The tongue may be physically small, but it, what tremendous effects it has. The intrinsic power of the tongue can be illustrated in the lives of men like Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill, two contemporaries who use that power for very different effects. One used the power of the tongue to incite anger and hatred, while the other used his to pull his nation together in the face of what seemed to be insurmountable odds. We can see this at work in our own lives. Wherever we go, whoever we interact with, careless speech on our part can cost us a lot. It can cost us relationships with our friends and family. They can cost us jobs. They can even get us in trouble with the law. The tongue possesses the ability to affect our lives in so many ways that if you think about it, the course of our lives could have been much different if we'd been chosen different words at different opportunities. James tells us the tongue boasts of great things. James underscores the sinful nature, inclination, our sinful nature and our inclination to be self-centered and to hold ourselves up in high esteem. We puff ourselves up in pride tearing down others which ties into our second point so we see the intrinsic power of the tongue but that intrinsic power is often used as a destructive power simply possessing the ability to, to control or to push in one direction or the other is sort of a neutral quality but when we understand that it's not a level playing field we're not starting from zero we're starting from sin we understand that we oftentimes more often than, than we should, utilize that power for destruction. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 tell us, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set amongst its members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and bird and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and have been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And here we see a shift in what James is telling us. James moves away from 
the neutrality of the tongue's power to speak about what it is often used to do. And to do that, he illustrates, uh, or you rather use the illustration of fire. A fire, like the tongue, is can be useful. But oftentimes, when, especially when wielded incorrectly, fire is, is, creates a destruction on a massive scale. Fire is a very unique element. It possesses the power of self-replication. Okay, so long as its fuel exists and has an oxygen source, it's going to continue to multiply and to grow. Not like, thing, maybe we want cookies and cake to do that, but they don't. Fire does it. You can't get Oreos to self-replicate. I've tried. <laughs> James' point is that as destructive as fire is, the tongue is destructive in that same way. Hey, every year, billions of dollars in damages is caused by fires, either from a natural cause, like a lightning strike, or from someone who doesn't understand the proper ways to utilize a burn pit, or just other kinds of nonsense, or even for malicious intent. Hey, every year, it seems around a certain time, California is constantly on fire. Hey, last year, Australia was on fire, like the whole country. Causing billions of dollars in destruction and leaving damages that last longer uh, than even monetary damages can fix. The tongue has the scope of inflammatory power, that kind of inflammatory power in human relationships. James is telling us that those who misuse the tongue are guilty of spiritual arson. There is always a danger when working with fire, and the same is true of the tongue. He tells us that it is the very world of iniquity, evil, rebellion, lawlessness, and every form of sin. One author stating that the tongue is a microchasm for evil amongst its members. It is vile, wretched, and wicked schemes of fleshly humanness. No other part has such far-reaching potential for disaster and destruction as the tongue. There's an old saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Depending on what it was that was said, I'm sure at times we wish somebody used a stone or a stick to beat us with. Because that would heal. Sometimes the wounds caused by misuse of our speech go on and carry through the rest of another person's life. He says that the tongue defiles the whole body and is set on fire by hell. You know, we, for the most part, are known for what we say. If we're a contentious and, and rude person, that is what will be expected of us by other people. A lack of self-control of the tongue has cost many people a lot of things. As stated earlier, we, you can lose jobs, relationships with families, family members and friends. You can even lose opportunities to minister and to share the gospel. Now, the misuse of the tongue gets its destructive power from that which symbolizes evil. 
Hey, James says that it is set on fire by hell, or Gehenna, this Jewish valley who in, uh, was at one point used in ritualistic worship of the pagan god Molech. In New Testament times, it had been turned into the city dump. It was a constant burning and wretched smell that came from it. James tells us, that's us, that's our tongue. It was the power of hell. That is the pit that was created for Satan and the demons. And it is sometimes used as a synonym for Satan and his power. What we're being told here is that our tongue can be used as an implement of Satan to fulfill his purposes in the world. The psalmist makes this claim about people who are treacherous. In Psalm 55, 21, his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they are drawn swords. This is the natural condition of the tongue, and therefore the heart before conversion. And James tells us earlier that we all stumble. And just going back a couple of verses, we see that even a mature believer has to guard themselves against misuse of this. And I want to make it clear, it is not simply the vocalization of, of that. Okay? That's even the voice up here. Okay, sometimes we can sit there and smile and are thinking up mental daggers to throw at people. James tells us in verses 7 and 8, that mankind has tamed every animal imaginable. We've tamed the horse, as stated earlier. We have individuals who think it's a fun idea to, you know, tame lions and stick their heads in their mouths. Or like the Florida cousin, the alligator wrestler, sticks their head in their mouths. A special group of people who, I think, want more holes in their head than they were born with. Hey, we have... Tamed those animals. We have we have trained bears to ride tricycles. I'd say that's one subdued creation. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, we have forced our will upon every animal that has walked the planet. But with all of our collective might and brain power, James tells us that none of us have been able to figure out how to tame the tongue. The Greek here adds a special emphasis to it explains that no that to underscore the fact that there's nothing we can do no created man hey, can tame the tongue it can only be brought into submission by the power of Jesus Christ that same redemptive power God uses to save our wretched souls can is the power that it can only bridle the tongue and this is because it changes the heart we are given a new heart a new nature, and therefore we have a new set of exhaust, as it were. Our tongues go from being a tool of Satan and is full of poison to a tool that is used to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the transformative nature of salvation, and it is incredibly amazing. When our hearts are changed, we are given access to a power that goes far beyond us. 
something that would be in, humanly impossible to do and follow God. Our condition before is dead in our trespasses and sins, but God causes us to be alive. And this doesn't mean that we won't stumble in things that we say. We are imperfect beings still affected by sin. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to turn the tide of that battle. We've seen the intrinsic power of the tongue and begun to discuss, discuss its destructive power. Number three, the tongue is oftentimes full of verbal cyanide. Now, James doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of all the different ways in which we can misuse our tongue, so I want to take a moment and just look at a few. The first is gossip. People love gossip. Spreading of, of things that are untrue often with the effect of causing someone to look differently at another person. And oftentimes, even if the rumor is proved to be incorrect, suspicion remains. Doubt remains. If you've ever been the victim of gossip, well, you vehemently defend yourself. That's not true. Oh, isn't it? I think he protests too much. Gossip veils itself in our conversations in such speech as, hey, well, do, do you know? Or, so they tell me, keep this to yourself, but. And the most Christian phrase of all, I'm only telling this to you so that you can be praying about it. But. Gossip in all of its forms is evil. It is evil. It sets the course of some people's lives on fire. That same fire of a hell. That destructive power is unleashed on other people. But that's not the only way that we do it. There's innuendo. Innuendo is a, is a close cousin of gossip. It hides the truth in plain sight. With gossip, it's about the things that are said. But with innuendo, not the things that aren't said. Consider this example. Well, as one author puts it, a ship's first mate was drunk after a drunken binge was written up by the captain in the ship's log. First mate drunk today. In revenge, the first mate writes in his log, Captain sober today. What's the implication there? This is an unusual event. Innuendo is all about what is implied. Cutting down someone in a way where you don't actually have to say what it is you want the person to understand. And some people believe this may be a gossip loophole. Well, I'm not gossiping. I didn't say that. In some ways, that makes innuendo more deceptive. Hey, it makes it almost worse. It's lying by telling the truth. In some cases, maybe a half-truth. Gossip, innuendo, flattery. 
Flattery is another one. If gossip involves saying something behind someone's back, you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to someone's face you would never say behind their back. The Bible warns us repeatedly to avoid a person who is a flatterer due to their unwholesome motives. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading his net for his steps. Proverbs 26.28, a lying tongue hates those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm 12 verses 3 and 4, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that speaks great things who have said with our tongue who will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? This is the person who comes to us with sweet words. Now, oftentimes children, Daddy, I love you. Do you? What did you do? <laughs> Criticism. Criticism, or sometimes called fault finding. If there was a pastime for the church as a whole, criticism would would be right up there. And we, when you look at the hit, not Lakeside. I'm not I'm not criticizing Lakeside. <laughs> when you look at the church as a whole throughout history, especially in the last few hundred years, criticism is a huge problem inside the church. The church has been filled with those who want their way. And to deviate from their way is, is to be tantamount to anathema. I'm not talking about a person's ex expectation of biblical fidelity from their leadership or accuracy in, in teaching from the scriptures. I'm talking about things like the pastor not wearing a full suit every time he speaks. I'm talking about wireless, the use of wireless microphones. Hey, I actually heard somebody say, that they walked into a church and heard somebody commenting on the pastor's use of a wireless mic and how, what are they trying to be? The, the pop star pastor? That's, that's, what, that's, that's what the world uses. Talking about things like drums on the stage. My doctrine's professor in college used to be a pastor. And he told us about the time that he was criticized by a member of his congregation because his tie was too thin. Thin ties are what rock and rollers wear. Oftentimes, we can be hypercritical over non-biblical issues and hold our personal preference as the gold standard as if we receive some kind of new revelation on whatever you want to say, men with beards. Hey, I'm sorry. If I didn't put a suit on either. Hey, this, that's nothing more than Pharisaical Judaism brought into, uh, into a church context. And we do this with, with people. Individuals, we point out flaws in them. Well, Mike, so is in his hair. I won't talk to him. A diminishment. This is oftentimes the, the end goal of criticism, is to diminish someone or something else. James chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak against one another, brethren. For he who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 
Literally, James is saying here, do not speak down against one another. James forbids the running down of another believer for any reason, whether true or not. If a criticism is genuine, there is a biblical way to handle it. Which does not involve running down an image bearer of God. There's been a lot of criticism in the last two, three years. People from all, all over different camps throwing mud at one another. Put a mask on. Don't put a mask on. Get the vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. And instead of loving one another, we bash one another disparage one another and in so doing we talk down the image of God who that other person was created in the image of a good example of this is found in Luke chapter 18 Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 say and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went up to to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That would have been scandalous for Jesus' hearers to hear. Surely everyone who heard him speak thought the Pharisee is the, is the right one there. He does all the external things well. But Jesus, as the fulfillment of the law, goes on to explain it's not about what we do on the outside. It is the heart attitude with which we do it as well. The verbal cyanide found in our speech does and seeks, as its name implies, to murder Misuse of our speech can invalidate our claims of true saving faith as well. James chooses his words very carefully. He chooses them with surgical precision. And some of the most harsh words he has for an individual who does not cultivate a disciplined use of their speech is found in James chapter 1 verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart, and that man's religion is worthless. Continued and habitual failure to control our speech can indicate that our faith is not genuine. And I'm not talking about failing from time to time. I'm talking about the pattern of our life. Because our speech, again, is an evidence of a changed heart. If our heart has not been changed, 
our speech will not be changed. And no amount of, you know, counting down from 10 to 1 or, or any kind of human exercise is going to change the habit of what we do and how we speak and how we speak to other people. James wrote James chapter 3 with the intent of believers examining their life and running the test of dis the disciplined use of their tongue in their life. And if we pass it, we can have great hope. But if not, we could be in real trouble. Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 34 say, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What are we filling our heart with? James chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send from it the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. James here telling us that, that we need to, again, cultivate the discipline use of our tongue. And to underscore that, he shows us that what we do on a daily basis is abnormal in creation. It's inconsistent with created nature. You would come to church and we worship. And the service ends and you step out in the parking lot and someone's driving a little too fast where you're about to walk. And what's the thing? Moron. <coughs> From the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. This should not be how we behave. Proverbs 4.23 Watch over your own heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. James is not saying here that if we slip up that we're somehow the unsaved. Again, we're speaking about, I'm speaking about a, a, a pattern of life, a, a habit. What it is that we do normally Hey, somebody shouldn't walk away from a conversation with us and go, wow, they were really pleasant today. What's that imply every other time? They were really pleasant today, just like every day. I've spoken a lot this morning about the tongue's power to destroy but that intrinsic power, as we discussed earlier, can also be used for good. It can be used to build up and to edify. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 say, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him if they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Human speech 
is the method by which God has ordained to spread the good news of the gospel. He didn't have to choose that way. Every 10 years or so, he could just shout from heaven, Hey, people, let me tell you what I did for you. But he didn't do that. No, he told his disciples, go out and tell the good news. Make disciples. Make them make disciples. So on and so forth. Spread the good news. And we do that with our speech. When wielded correctly, with a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, our speech can do good things. A tongue that is controlled is, again, is a marker of an individual who belongs to Jesus. Again, the tongue is nothing more than the exhaust vent for our heart. We want to be known as someone who is slow to speak, who listens and doesn't just react. We can do that too. We, you know, we, we get impatient. You have a conversation with someone, you don't listen, and then you start talking and it didn't make any sense because you weren't, didn't actually address the person's concern because we're so quick to say something. Our speech should be seasoned with salt, not a fire. You want to know who somebody really is? Listen to the way that they talk especially when they're under pressure. And when something, when not everything's going well. I had a buddy who used to say that he liked to listen to people in the gym when they worked out because you really got a good sense of who someone was when you worked out with them. We can fake it. But when the screws are put to us, sometimes the real us might leak out. We have to put forth effort into cultivating a disciplined use of our tongue. The most important first step in that is we must surrender our lives to Jesus. Because without him, it's impossible. There is no 10-step program to making sure that you don't say anything mean ever again. It doesn't work. It's one of those things that is only changed by the gospel. That isn't to say that you're saved and all of a sudden, that's it. Everything out of your mouth is, is beautiful then. It's not how that works either. So we first surrender our lives to our Savior. Second, we pray to God to aid us. Because just like every other part of our life, we need to ask God to help us every day. We have to commit ourselves to speak the truth, but in love. To abstain from gossip and flattery. To abstain from running down others. To abstain from coarse jesting. You know, sometimes we think that we have a past in the things that we say because it's just a joke. Calm down. It's not. Our speech will dictate how our ministry 
Okay, not, you know, not everyone in this room is a pastor. That's okay. But we all have a ministry to our friends, to our family. Our speech will dictate the direction our ministry goes and our witnessing opportunities that will be afforded to us. A couple of weeks ago, I marked 18 years at public supermarkets. I'm in my 19th year because apparently I got old overnight. Um, you know, when I started there, I was in school and now I have kids in school. I don't understand how that works. Somebody could tell me how to fix that. I remember roughly 15 years ago, working in the cash office at my store. And I was having an extremely difficult night. I was working with our check encoding machine, which when I tell my current co-workers that they have no idea what that means, we don't use it anymore. But I was having a, a it was a very finicky machine. You, you put the check in there and if somebody didn't, if somebody ripped the corner off the check, pulling it out of their checkbook, you might as well get a sleeping bag. You're going to be there all night trying to get those things through. And after 15 minutes of this machine jamming on me, the speech that left my mouth was not seasoned with soul. And right after I finished telling this machine exactly what it is I thought of it, there's a knock on the cash room door. Now, the way my store used to be set up is the manager's office set right next to the cash office. And the second I heard that knock, I knew exactly what that was for. I opened the door and found one of my, uh, one of my supervisors standing there, and he just looked at me with a smile on his face. Mike, is everything okay back here? Because it sounds like I'm back here and not you. And I realized in that moment, I had destroyed my testimony before this person. And I wasn't given another opportunity to witness to this individual. It became a joke from that point forward. Guess what Mike said? For a second, the humidity seems to be getting to me. The things that we say, whatever situation they may, uh, we may find ourselves in, will dictate the opportunities we have to share the gospel because that differentiates us from unbelievers. Spilled coffee on myself. It's hot. Will people see Christ today in the things that we say, or will they be given an occasion to blaspheme him? What's interesting, when you look at James in James chapter 3, he doesn't give any tips for taming the tongue. There isn't a do this and then you're all good. That's because he first wants us to understand and recognize that we have a problem. 
You know, too often we like to look at uh, look at our lives on the horizontal scale. You know, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, that may be true, but the scale isn't horizontal, it's vertical. Our actions aren't measured against one another, they're measured against the holiness of God. We have to recognize that we have a problem and can't get caught up in the mindset of it's not that bad. I can get. I can get. A, I can control it at any time. Hey, that's the defense of an alcoholic. We recognize that we have a problem, and that is a sin problem. And because it is a sin problem, it is a problem that we cannot fix ourselves. Nothing we can try and do can fix it. We can't fix ourselves. We're dead. There was a dead rabbit in my front yard the other week. I looked at that rabbit and said, hey, get up and get out of my yard. He didn't, he didn't fix the problem. He was, he was in the middle of my yard and I want my kids to see him. I also didn't want to touch him. So I asked politely, do you mind getting up and fixing this problem for me? My kids are going to be out here soon. He didn't because he's dead. And that's us. We're dead in our, in our sins and trespasses. It is only by faith and trust in Christ that we can escape the sin that so easily entangles us. We have to look to him and to his power because that is the only way that we can cultivate a disciplined use of our tongue. In reading for this Sunday, I came across a little poem. I liked it so much I'm going to say it. Says the boneless tongue, so small and weak, can crush and kill, declares the Greek. The tongue destroys a greater horde, the Turk asserts, than does the sword. The Persian proverb wisely saith, a lengthy tongue and early death. Or sometimes takes this form instead, don't let your tongue cut off your head. The tongue can speak a word whose speed, says the Chinese, outstrips the steed. While Arab sage doth this in part, the tongue's great storehouse is the heart. From Hebrew wit the maxim sprung, though your feet may slip, ne'er let your tongue. But the sacred writer crowns the whole, he who keeps his tongue doth keep his soul. Our speech is an indication of our heart. And my prayer for everyone here, not just in this room, but at Lakeside as a whole, uses it as a witness for the Lord. We can get caught up in you know, conversations or routines when we're out and about amongst people that may not be primarily believers. And sometimes we can let our guard down. Don't do that. Be a witness with our speech wherever you may find yourself. Let's close in prayer.